0: I'm on the boat and I rub my eye and it starts to hurt. And then, you know, I'm I'm immediately troubleshooting, like, why does my eye hurt? Son of a bitch, the frog.
1: Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here for another episode. So if you wanna go check out portcitypet.com, portcitypythons.com, I have some amazing merch as well as some supplies, some crazy isopods. We have the giant oranges, we have Dalmatians, we have the clue guy or the clowns. Uh, So please go check that out as well as things like isostrate, which I've been using as a bioactive substrate. I'm probably going to make my own mix of a bioactive substrate pretty soon. I'm trying to dial in what I'm using with my snakes, so I look forward to showing you guys that as well as uh, springtails and dwarf white and stuff like that always available. So please go check that out. Also, I think we may have some geckos uh, coming soon, but I don't know. Give me a little bit on that one. Um, But anyway, guys, thank you guys so much for being here. Today's going to be an awesome show. So we do actually have a repeat guest Um, Today's guest is Associate Professor of Biology, Zoo Science, and Applied Conservation Coordinator at West Liberty University. That's a lot of words to say Um, in a row. He has also described, I believe it's over 10 crayfish species. Um, So yeah, uh, really glad to have on uh, Dr. Zachary Lachman. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Of course. So we've had you on before. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you just give a little bit of a brief overview of what you do?
0: uh yeah i'm a professor at west lib um it's also the school i went to college at so it's it's basically my home um and at the university i am the guy that's in charge of all the ecology and organismal biology stuff so um one of that one of those majors that we have is the zoo science major and that's an awesome major basically prepares people to work in zoos aza accredited institutions is what we hope to do and then we also do a tremendous amount of field-based biology so that's where the crayfish kind of come in but i kind of have in many regards my dream job because it, on the one hand i get to go out most years not this year uh, and you know go into the field and look for crayfish and whatever else is there and describe new species and do conservation and all that which is great but then back at school since i'm the zoo side coordinator i i I was told back in 2016, build an animal collection. I was like, are are you serious? Like I could do this. So we now have 200 reptiles and amphibians and a handful of mammals. And I basically kind of serve as the curator for all those beasties. And then we don't just have them to have them. Um, We do a lot of science. So we're actually studying, We're, we're like tackling some of the big questions in herpetoculture, trying to get all the you know, the keyboard warrior aspect out of the way, and just look at it objectively with a data-minded framework, and actually see if we can figure out the answers to some of these long-standing questions. So,
1: now, right now, it. you're doing this interview in a room that's filled with cages, and what do I, and what I assume at
0: least is your house. Yes, this uh, is my house. Just
1: so, does this collection blend? How does that work?
0: Oh, uh, it totally blends. Um, there's definitely animals here that are affiliated with the university. Uh, we. The university isn't large enough to have, you know, a full-blown reptile building. So, to the chagrin of my wife, some of the animals have, you know, infiltrated the house. My garage serves as our quarantine, one of our quarantine spaces. Uh, over the winter, we had to broodmate stuff for breeding. Uh, there's nowhere that gets cold enough. So I spent like two hours one day with a temp gun, just trying to find where 48 and 50 degrees was. And turns out I have like the perfect corner. So all the animals came down. Um, to mate, but there's also plenty of, you know, animals here that are mine. So that's, what's awesome is that I get to work with snakes all day at school and, you know, with students as well. And then I come home and there's snakes here too. So it's a good thing.
1: So are you doing any research that's focused specifically on breeding?
0: Um, Yes and no. Uh, we we kind of had something fall in our lap with, COVID uh, in that we, so I have two graduate students, we have a graduate program too. So you can actually get a master's degree in this stuff. And those grad students needed baby snakes for their thesis. So we were going to, uh, we did a plan in the fall, we came up with, we're gonna study hognose snakes, Western hognose snakes, uh, my favorite false water cobras. And then we were gonna use corn snakes because corn snakes are kind of the model for most herpetoculture papers that are published in peer reviewed journals. And so we kind of calculated out, all right, we need this many offspring, so we'll breed this many snakes uh, to get that magic number for the thesis. And then meanwhile, we were also breeding some other things uh, kind of for fun and to build up our stock so we could do future experiments. And a lot of that breeding happened in the fall. And long story short, we had no evidence that any of it took. Um, we had no ovulation swells. Our girls weren't you know, blowing up with eggs. And then... You know, everybody knows what happened in March, COVID hit, and everybody left. And so our animals went from having people around them all the time to no one. It turns out having people around a lot impacts whether or not the snakes are stressed. And if they're stressed, they don't want to ovulate. So we had an awful lot of delayed (laughs) ovulations that led to offspring we weren't necessarily anticipating because we bred these snakes all the way back in September. And they actually started dropping in March, sorry, at mid, mid-April, past couple weeks. So they were retaining sperm. And this the species that did that, we had some barons racers. We had a female barons racer that did that. Uh, we had a uh, poplin carpet that did that. Um, we had a yellowtail creebo that did that. We had a false water cobra that did that. So we ended up getting all these clutches on the ground that we weren't necessarily prepared for. We weren't prepared for them. But I calculated for about 100 eggs. And we're sitting at just over 200 so we're like a double what we had calculated so wow. we bought some racks <laughs> very <laughs> quickly you know rush order turns out that there's a lot of places they're out of racks but we we got them coming um but no we're gonna have nice big robust sample sizes for those thesis projects that's what's nice so
1: and are you on a kind of a tight titans- end Budget, not not budget, but as far as people go, I mean, are there oh. are there people there to attend to the animals and stuff like that? Yeah,
0: normally we would have a, an army of undergrads and then three to four grad students. And I, I got to give a big shout out for the three current zoo science graduate students, because they basically, you know, everybody else went home and they were deemed essential. So they actually stayed on campus and maintained our animal collection for us. Um, and they've been very busy. Uh, they, and the other thing that's really interesting about the three of them is uh, they had they didn't have much experience with breeding snakes and eggs and and they've done an absolutely amazing job. They've learned a ton. Uh, and I kept getting like messages like this one laid eggs. I'm like well we didn't plan for that. And then the next day these three laid eggs. I was like, oh man what the hell's going on here? So our incubators are popping right now. Um, it's going to be interesting in about three four weeks when everybody starts hatching. But I think we're ready. Uh, we have a meeting about that this week actually. So,
1: yeah, it's kind of funny how snakes are like that in the way that obviously they waited until mm-hmm. things got quiet and presumably safe, I guess, to, yes. to go ahead and ovulate. No.
0: The Baron's racers are the ones that blow my mind because we stopped trying to produce those all the way back at the end of August, the beginning of September. Uh, and she dropped, she was one of the last females to drop. So she dropped eggs about three or four weeks into March and just totally caught us uh, because she didn't really get too huge uh and yeah but we got 21 eggs in the incubator now which is great because i got all kinds of ideas for those little guys so and
1: was that a green phase mm-hmm.
0: yeah, we don't yeah that, that's one of the, the the interesting things about our collection is we're not you know we're we're in this for the science so i don't really care what paint job the snake has so i usually just go for like the the cheapest Mm-hmm. Available, with the, available, yeah, with the best genetics. So, like, uh, we have ball pythons because I want to do a lot of work with ball pythons simply to answer these questions that everybody brings up about ball pythons. And if you came and saw our ball python collection, we have a normal and another normal, and then two more normals and a fifth normal. So, like, you know, we went to a show and just dropped $200 and got our stock. So, um, but no, no morphs. We don't have anything like that. That there.
1: is the rarest phase of the ball python. Though.
0: It is now. <laughs> it wasn't back in the day. So I know we have. There's, there's some other random genes in there, and we did actually breed balls because we needed them for a project. So I, I'm kind of curious what's going to pop out of those eggs because, Lord knows, if we had heads or something like that for some crazy gene or something.
1: Would that be?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what do you do then? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the thing that a lot of people don't, we don't think about is while those genes are impacting the phenotype of the snake, there's they could be linked to another gene complex that controls like how much of a given digestive enzyme they make. Um, and so it does kind of worry me a little bit that like, we're trying to get baseline stock, and and there may be some weird gene pair in there that's having some impact that nobody is aware of. Uh, in the animal I mean it it could impact like a brain enzyme enzyme or something like that so but we'll see what happens
1: and now I mean there's a species in particular that you've taken a liking to I know uh false water cobras so yes can you talk a little bit about how you got into those in the first place Mm -hmm.
0: um well my background with Herpeticulture is kind of interesting because in the, the mid 90s when I was in high school and then the early 2000s when I was in college, like this is all I did. I, I went to school with the idea like back during Steve Irwin's days and Jeff Corwin's days, and Marco Shea was my absolute favorite um, on Animal Planet back in the day. And yeah, you know, I wanted to be a snake biologist. And then when I went off to graduate school, I found out there were actually a lot of people that wanted to be snake biologists, and then that's when I segued over to crayfish, because You know big fish small pond equals a paycheck in biology so that's kind of why that transition happened and when that happened i kind of got out of herpetoculture and that was around 2005 ish um and i've always had a snake or two uh actually roaming that top tank right there's a corn snake that i purchased way back in like 2001. uh but anyway um then the zeusai major came back in 2016 or sorry we got the zeusai major and then herpetoculture just was thrown right back into my lap you know, and I don't do things small. I have a tendency to dive in head first and figure out how I'm going to land later. So, you know, I'm back in this, the thick of it. And I, I kind of had that moment where I was trying to figure out, like, what is going to be my animal? And everybody has their animal. Um, and I really like Nerodia, and I like things that live in water. Uh, and I've always liked snakes that were, that had a personality that were, you know, would, would basically hiss and whip and do all that kind of crazy stuff nerodia there you go so i i was looking at what we were going to purchase and i just stumbled onto a water cobra page and I, i thought oh i remember those and and my perception of them was that they had a venom that was equal to a timber rattlesnake that they were really aggressive and and that this was not an animal to be like working with so i actually bought one for me it had nothing to do with the university at all and there was a guy up in Pittsburgh you know it was your classic go to the tattoo shop and buy the snake in the back of the tattoo shop because that's literally where I bought her um (laughs) brought her back and you know and and sure enough this thing came out of a deli cup and it was piss and vigor and was trying to chew on my hand and was hooding and it was absolutely fantastic like I thought this is great um well, then I started reading about them, and then I realized that there was, like, the perception of what a water cobra was, and then there was the reality of what a water cobra was. And as I started working with this critter, what totally enamored me with it is they're 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 working or functioning mentally at a different level. Uh, and everybody talks about Kribos and, uh, you know, all your real intel- intelligent snakes, and I'd worked with a lot of snakes. But this little water cobra man, I mean, she... She knew when the door opened, she'd go to the corner where I'd put the rats in. Um, She did all these crazy bluff behaviors. And I just kind of absolutely became infatuated with this snake. And so then I thought, well, you know, I need another one. So then I picked up a male. um, And the other thing that's crazy about them is they grow like you wouldn't believe. And so the next thing you know, I have this snake that was in a deli cup. Six months later, it's this three and a half foot long monster that has this wicked feeding response. Um, And then the male did the same thing. And then I just couldn't get enough of them. And so I just read everything I could. I read journal articles. I read books because there's really not that much out there. Uh, And as I was doing that, this herpetoculture research stuff we're doing uh, was kind of there. And I just realized, like, this is the perfect snake for me to do all this work with because they are intelligent. You can study their behavior. You can document their behavior. They literally let you know when they're pissed because they make a hood. So I don't have to sit there and think, is it mad? I know it's mad. Um, I, know when it's con- I, I know when it's content. Um, and so that dynamic made it really good. And then I just started taking care of them, got online, talked to people, and figured out that this is a snake that people don't know that much about. Like the reality of water cobras and the perception of water cobras just were not the same thing. So that was a little bit rambling because I get excited when I talk about them, but at the same time, you know. Yeah, they're, they're they're absolutely fantastic.
1: So let's go over some general husbandry. Mm-hmm. So sure. uh how do you go about keeping that that young baby out of the deli cup?
0: Um what what water cobras need above everything else is ventilation. Uh this is not a snake that you can put into your into your average rack and and you know, they're back there. I'm not anti-rack necessarily, but water cobras, if you're going to put them in a rack when they're young you have to make sure you got lots of ventilation because they defecate more than any freaking snake i've ever had you put a mouse or you know prey item in them and then within 48 hours it's out the backside and somehow it accumulates in mass like i don't understand how they do this but but you know they do so initially i was keeping uh i kept this little the little female initially in a in a rubbermaid uh Tub on my desk, not in a rack, but just in a tub. And then I realized that wasn't working. So I moved it to the dreaded 10 gallon aquarium. And, you know, but I had that ventilation. I had a heat lamp on her Uh, water source. They do need a water source. There's a little bit of debate with the water source as to whether they really do need it. I keep all of mine with a water source and they go in and out, you know, daily. So I gave the water source and then you just, you know, that's the basic setup. But the thing is, this is a species of snake that needs to eat a lot. Um, And I did some science to prove this and people are going to accuse me of saying you're power feeding them. I think a lot of that attitude comes from if you don't feed them at the rate they need to be fed, which is about once every five days when they're young uh, to a week, but you're kind of pushing it at that week mark. That's when they just become psychotic. I mean, they, that's when they, come at everything that moves as a prey item because they're freaking hungry. Uh, but they will convert that food that they're eating to growth. So if you're gonna consider one of these snakes, you start off with a baby that's eight to 10 inches long and I've gotten them to four and a half, five feet in a year. And that's not like corn snake, four and a half feet. This is more like a Woma or a black headed Python. Like they're very big and bulky um, snakes. And you just have to make sure that, as they're they're growing, that you're getting them into an enclosure that's the right size. So I use PVC enclosures. Um, and then ultimately, my my large adults at West Liberty, I keep them in animal plastic t twenty fives, which are the six foot long by like two foot wide, eighteen inches tall enclosures. and And they're active snakes. This is a snake that doesn't just sit in the corner. um they're they're out cruising. They have a daily routine, which is really, really interesting um and yeah you know that's that's it in a nutshell temperature wise i they don't like to be hot um my hot end of the vivariums i have radiant heat panels and i keep them at about 82 83 but that's a big enclosure and the back end where there is no heat it's down around 75 and they tend to stay in the middle to the back end when they when they get their rats they'll go up underneath the heat panels for you know the five hours after that but they're normally not at the hot end of the of the of the enclosure, but when they become adults to subadults, I don't see how you could possibly keep them pro- appropriately in a rack because when they go to the bathroom, um, you can smell it. I have six of these in my office at work, and I've literally had students that have they need office hours and they will come to the doorway, step in and then immediately step back out because of the stench that they create when they go to the bathroom. So if you don't have proper ventilation, uh, that's a problem. And when they do go to the bathroom, those big monsters, I mean, we're talking like it looks like a human toddler was crawling around in there into the dump. I mean, it's, it, it, it's epic. So, um, so that, that ventilation is absolutely key. And that's why I don't feel like this is an animal that you should be keeping in a tub. I mean, it, it's just, it, unless you have some kind of, air flow system that's going to recycle air and get that ammonia out of there when they do go to the bathroom um it's it's not not good but they're they're very very rewarding um they they respond to their keepers uh we've done target training with snakes at west liberty and without question the snake that picked it up the fastest it's basically associative learning are the water cobras um and they can pick it up in as you know as quickly as three to four sessions they know that target is equals food. I need to hit that, and then the rats come in. So, yeah, they're great.
1: So, have you used that kind of training for anything else other than obviously just association there? I mean, have you gotten them out of the enclosures and moved them around and stuff like that?
0: Um, to a certain degree, uh, we're, we're doing that research with bait with juvenile water cobras, uh, but at, at work, I have two large females that both produce clutches for me this year. And I don't know what has happened, but post clutch, they've, they've been a little bit crazy uh, as far as their feeding responses off the chain. So um, they, they definitely know, like, I kind of put my hand up like this and will you know, move it in a certain direction. And they know the hand goes up where the hand goes, that's where the rat's coming. So I can kind of move them and then, use my other hand to open the enclosure and, and, you know, I've got the rat on the tongs. I just, in one of the Facebook groups, uh, it's called False Water Cobra, imagine that, I just put a video up of the one female and she shot out, grabbed the rat, wrapped it, and then fell out of the enclosure into the bucket where all the other rats were. I mean, that's like, (laughs) that's, that's the other thing that they're known for is they have a ridiculous feeding response, but not all of them do. I would say about 60% of them do, but I have plenty of animals at West Liberty that are very shy. And it's the classic, put the rat at the opening of that hide box and then walk away and they'll come out and and feed.
1: Now, what's a big individual? Um, How big do they get as well as are males bigger than females, vice versa?
0: Yeah. So lengthwise, they're one of the largest colubrids or colubroids, technically, that's the right way to say that, in the world. Um, But they can e- easily, the females can get to seven and a half, eight feet. Uh, and, and some of my girls are, are pushing like eight, 10 pounds. I mean, these are not small. The males can get to be the same length, but they don't normally get the same bulk. But there, there are absolutely some exceptions to that. Um, we have a male at West Liberty uh, that we, we, we got from someone, and it's, it, has, it's, it weighs the same, it's the same dimensions as our big females. But all the other males that we have are relatively. Yeah, you know, They're just smaller in overall bulk. And with that bulk, they do some crazy things. So one of the things I love about them is that they, dare I say it, have what equates to personality. Uh, and, you know, a lot of snakes, we can, we're snake guys, we love snakes, but there's not much going on up there. With water cobras, everyone's a little bit different. And they're the only snake that I've ever experienced being whipped by. Um, I didn't know they did this. And I was messing with with one of the bigger females I had. I was raising her up at the time. And she didn't like what I was doing. I was trying to pull her out of the cage. And she took the last third of her body and just like, whoa, bam like hit me right in the head with it. I was like, what the hell is going on? I've had monitor lizards do this, like iguanas. And then she did it again. And, you know, I let go and backed off and was like, this isn't – first of all, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, I just got – thumped by a snake. But then after that, um, I realized, you know, I put it up on one of the forums, like, do they do this? And then everybody started, you know, giving the the story about how they, how they do do that. So they'll do that to you. They, um, they'll mock charge you. So they'll kind of come at you with that hood up if they get upset. Uh, But then they stop. Uh, I've never actually been struck at mouth open by one. Uh, I've had them do the threat display uh but most of the time when they when they're adults all that goes away and they're actually really really chill snakes um all all the biting attempts I've experienced were with subadults and neonates and and the big guys I have and girls they're not I've never been struck at not saying I won't be inevitably but I haven't been to date
1: and speaking of which I know most people are probably thinking that's a rear fang animal mm-hmm. so uh, have you been envenomated by any of those bites uh, that you've talked about?
0: To be envenomated by one of these guys, they got they have to bite you and they have to chew. And it's that that chewing part's the critical part of the endeavor. So, you know, I don't want to be envenomated. So every time that I've been bitten, I've been only been bitten like three times in my life, and it was actually what, two of them happened within ten minutes of each other with a clutch of eggs. The babies are, the babies are the where they get their reputation. They, they want to gnaw on everything and anything. And then I had my, was uh, my now breeder male, but he was a subadult at the time. Um, he overshot the mouse and I was holding the tongs and he kind of grabbed onto my thumb. And I thought, this is bad because feeding response bites are always the worst. And so I just immediately grabbed him with my other hand and plopped him off. And and the worst thing that happens is with one of the babies, My I didn't get any real swelling. It just kind of itched a little bit. Um, histamine reaction now i'm not going to downplay this Uh, i don't want people to like hear what i'm saying and be like oh they're cool i should cuddle with them like it's a rear fanged snake they do have components in their venom uh that are you know we need to to talk about they have a whole bunch of these things called metalloproteinases in there which are the exact same biological compounds that rattlesnakes have this is where people say they got a bite like a timber rattlesnake and what those do is those are you know those are associated with anti coagulation so they basically get rid of your platelets and and make it so you you bleed uh with a water cobra though it's it's a very disingenuous comparison to say that their venom is equal to a timber rattlesnake because you know when the water cobra bit me i was like damn it and i plucked it off a freaking timber bites me i'm gonna be freaking out so what they have to do to get that in you is they have to actually like do the chewing and as long as you get it off you, you're going to be relatively okay. The problem is, you can always have an anaphylactic reaction because those are proteins being put into your body, and that's where the danger with the bite happens. So you know you definitely have to respect them. And then a- another aspect is those big adults. I don't even want to know what it's like to get tagged by one of those things because they have like you actually watch the skull depress when they bite something. And I've talked to a couple people who just basically said it's almost like getting bit by a kukri snake, like you're going to bleed everywhere because they do have really big teeth in the back of their mouth. Um, but it's, I, you know, I've seen hognose snake bites, Western hognose snakes, which people want to like boop snoots and do all that garbage with those bites are million times worse in most cases than the false water cobras. But, uh, you know, everybody's biochemistry is different. And if you're the unfortunate person, it, it can definitely be a bad day.
1: Now, obviously, that was you messing around with babies, but I mean, how long do you give them um, before you decide to breed as far as um, females and males go? Uh,
0: uh, they need to go three and a half, four years. And I bred two females that I raised up, and they were 2016s. They were early 2016s, and they both produced um, 24 eggs each. They're Productivity-wise with water cobras, they're incredibly fecund, like they have a lot of eggs. A uh, clutch of 24 is actually not, like that's not a big number. They've had clutches in the 30s and even pushing 40 before. And then the other thing about them is these might be one of, if not the easiest snake to breed. Uh, I was kind of shocked at how quickly the male showed interest in the female, as in I, the first time I tried to breed them, I put the male in with the female, I closed the door, like slid the glass door closed on the enclosure, and in the time it took me to plop him up in there and close the door, there was already courting behavior, and he just did not stop for days. I mean, it was like incredible. At school in the summertime, no one's up on campus, and I'll take the snakes out on the quad and let them kind of, our you know, our great big open area, and just let them get some exercise and UVB and all that kind of good stuff. And I took two of the females out in the male, and I put the male on one end of the quad and the females on the other. And the male was kind of doing his thing, and he went over the trail of one of the females where she was. And he like stopped dead in his tracks, started tongue flicking like crazy, and then did a beeline right over to the male or sorry, the female, and right in the middle of the freaking quad started copulating with her. Um, when I'm at school, I put them out in the hallway on Sunday afternoons to go and do the deep cleans. And sure enough, uh, I, I, put the male in the uh, zoology lab, which is across the hallway from me and the female out in the hallway. And I had the door kind of propped open with a big tall garbage can. The male went up over the garbage can out into the hallway and started courting the females right away. So um, I had a little bit better success this year though. Uh, A lot of people say you don't need to cycle them. I kind of did a nerdy deep dive into Paraguay and Bolivia where they come from. And I realized that they do have uh, a winter. Their climate's kind of like Columbia, South Carolina. And when I did cycle them, um, my clutch size went up. So I think that that's an important aspect for maybe male fertility or uh, for the females. But they also, the eggs are huge. They look like Python eggs. They do not look like a colubrid egg. I mean, we're talking about an egg that's like, I don't know, inch and a half to two inches. They're big. So you get these nice, big, robust babies um, that are slightly demonic and want to eat everything. So you don't have to like, they don't have to worry usually with water cobra young, I mean this is not something most of them are so snappy and, and you kind of want that that it, you can kind of do the. waggle the pinky in front of their head and they'll just strike at it and then you know usually gobble it right down i've never i've had one animal that I got a little bit concerned with. Uh, in the past couple of clutches i've produced, but other than that, the first clutch I produced everybody ate right off the bat and never stopped mm. Uh so no they're really awesome in that regard too
1: and now taking a step back i mean what did Mm -hmm. you do with the eggs uh incubation medium and temperatures Mm -hmm. and stuff like that
0: um keep them on perlite that's what we do and we don't measure like we don't do the way out the water and it's kind of an eyeball thing um and then put them into the into perlite and then at 82 and a half degrees fahrenheit and uh you kind of there's some some people think that dips added snakes which is what these guys are um may have temperature determined sex determination Uh, but at 82 and a half degrees the past two clutches i produced well it was almost a split 50 50 sex ratio and i have we have three incubating right now three clutches we got over 60 eggs in the incubator so um I'll, i'll know a lot more about that here in about two three weeks if that's true
1: so, is there any type of incubating at different temperatures going on, or is it all
0: right? There in might the be. Place? <laughs> <laughs> I might have uh, one of those clutches was a little bit of a surprise. We picked up an adult pair um, for people that do water covers, This really cool guy out of Philadelphia named Bob Long. Um, we got his two breeder animals at West Liberty, and he said that like there was that he put the male with the female back in November, and we didn't see any kind of swell, and we got this we ended up getting a clutch out of her. And so I took some of those because we weren't ready for them and we didn't have incubator space. So they're being incubated at 77 and a half with the Kribos. Um, and I checked on them today and they're, you know, beautiful veins, everybody's red. So we'll see if if that produces anything. It's just a fun little, you know, side thing. It's not anything official. It was more out of necessity, but definitely my nerd brain was like, this is cool, so.
1: No, and that's awesome, especially yeah. if you could if you could prove some type of sex link, but even even if you mm-hmm. don't, um as even with colubrids, you know, with corn snakes yeah. or something, uh, a snake that's incubated at 80 degrees is going to look different than a snake yeah. is incubated at 86 mm-hmm. degrees. I mean, there's going to be different sizes, attitudes, and exactly. uh, there's actually a lot of variability just yeah. due to that.
0: And that's also something I wanted to see if we could get bigger babies if we made the incubation longer. Uh, so we'll see
1: yeah yeah and uh i mean colubrid people have been doing that that forever mm-hmm. me- messing around with different uh, incubation temperatures mm-hmm. and how much time they want them to be in the eggs and whatnot um so once you get those babies out you said a lot of them are going on uh frozen thawed no problem
0: yes uh like i said uh up to now these have been among the easiest snakes that I've ever, you know, I've taken care of. And I've had pythons and colubrids and uh, boas, like the whole, and oddballs are my thing. So back in the day, you know, I was, I was the guy that bought the sunbeam snake at the herb show. (laughs) And I actually kept mine alive for about two and a half years. And then it ultimately, you know, went down. So like those weird things that require different husbandry than normal, I've definitely done a lot with them. And water cobras just seem to be really easy so far.
1: when are you going to get those dragon rat snakes in?
0: uh, I refuse to buy those. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't want to do the frog and the, you know, the tadpole thing. I mean, they're, they're cool. uh, But also with my setup at West Liberty, it's kind of interesting because I have to choose animals that, that are a little bit bulletproof. And I imagine that dragon rat snakes are not the best thing to have like 20 (laughs) random 19 year olds taken care of. So uh, maybe here at the house, but I don't know. I mean, I'm saying this and, probably within the next 10 years they'll be living here so
1: anyway yeah once someone (laughs) figures them out
0: yeah Mm -hmm. i'll let somebody else do that though so yeah
1: understandable i mean Mm -hmm. that goes for all of us right once uh
0: yeah yeah
1: anyway (laughs) so what do you do with these babies
0: once you hatch them out i mean so we will raise the babies and they're absolutely going to be used for um experiments. So right now, uh, we're doing a lot of investigation into snake welfare. And we're kind of doing this, uh, there's no agenda with what we're doing other than just answering some questions. So uh, one of the questions I'm really interested in is what level of, you know, decoration in a cage? What lighting level? What do we actually need to make it so that the snakes are content? I'm not going to use the word happy. Um, uh, because that's an anthropomorphism. Just simply content and content means we're not stressed. So with, with for us to answer that question, we can't use four animals and then you know determine for all corn snakes, this is what we have to do based off of a sample size of four. So we need these big, robust sample sizes. And the easiest way for us to do that is to breed the snakes, rear them to a certain size, usually subadult juvenile, and then we we'll do these replicate you know setups. And so we do a lot of naturalistic versus sterile. Um, So sterile would be your classic like tub with newspaper, a water bowl, and maybe a hide. And then naturalistic, not bioactive, just naturalistic, um, which is going to be an organic substrate, cage decorations, uh, cork tubes, cork flats, uh, those kind of plastic reptile hides. And then what we do is, We give the animals choice. So that's how I wanted to go about answering the question, what do the animals need? I don't want to, you know, if I can let the animal tell me what it needs by it having the choice to live here and here, and those are the two options, wherever they end up going the most is obviously probably what's the best for their their welfare. And I know there's people listening to this devil's advocating what I'm saying, and I've done it too, (laughs) believe me. But um, these choice experiments have been really, really cool. Uh, And so up till now, we've used adult snakes. Now I want to kind of get into neonate and juvenile snakes. And one of the big questions I have is, you know, a lot of people will do the, the, with the whole rack argument, Uh, they'll make an argument that like, well, you got to put it in a naturalistic enclosure. And I personally have experienced snakes that I thought would thrive in a naturalistic enclosure. And I put them in a naturalistic enclosure and they tanked. I mean, they tanked hard. no pun intended so like timor pythons i had a pair of those and we for west liberty and we brought them in and we put them in a reptile basics pvc enclosure with cork tubes and everything couldn't get them to eat couldn't get them to do anything put them back into a rack with newspaper and they ate like crazy Uh, so that tells me for that particular individual snake that what i perceive as the ultimate in welfare is not the ultimate for that animal's welfare but then i want to ask the question well, why isn't it happy in this, or I said happy, why isn't it content in this PVC box with all this um these cage this cage furniture? And what I think it is, is I think that when you take that baby, whatever you put it into initially, that's gonna imprint upon that snake an idea of what is, you know, what a stable environment is. And if that's all it knows growing up, then maybe. If you put it on the newspaper and it never leaves the newspaper maybe to it newspaper is what equals stability and then you take that same animal and put it into this naturalistic enclosure and there's going to be this shock Uh, and then some animals get past that shock but other animals don't get past that shock and i'm not saying anything that any reptile keeper doesn't already know but the thing is no one has ever tested it scientifically so no one's you know used the scientific method to see is there truth to this so that's one of the reasons why we have so many baby snakes on the way is that we're going to be doing an experiment where we take a whole bunch of baby hognose snakes water cobras corn snakes and we're going to put them into sterile enclosures um we're going to also put them right into little tubs that have a whole bunch of naturalistic you know mulch and all that kind of good stuff we're going to raise them to a certain size and then we're going to introduce them to the opposite when they're older and we're going to see are they stressed And if they're stressed, then we can, you know, now we have the ability to give this back to herpetoculture and be like, this is what may be going on. So we don't have a dog in anybody's fight. We just literally want to figure out what the best approach is to to the snakes. So, you know, and that's that. But that's just one example of one of the experiments we're doing. So we need lots of babies. So it's a good thing we have 200 little ones coming (laughs) soon. Now, is there any
1: way to, say, like, condition an animal like that more Python? I mean, do you think there's exposure that you could give that animal to eventually yeah. be able to be in a PVC enclosure?
0: I think you absolutely can. Um, now, at the time, we couldn't afford to do that at West Liberty. And so we ultimately moved those animals on to somebody else who was definitely, you know, they're thriving now. But there's all kinds of strat- – I mean, I, I even, you can put them in the tub, like literally give them the tub inside the enclosure and then cut out a doorway so they can basically use the tub as a hide box and then they can you gradually move their way over and i've i've i have done that before but i've also i I have snakes that that just will not i try to get them into the naturalistic enclosure it's badass setup everything about it looks awesome and those things just have no business doing that actually if you look at the big tub, the well It's right on my shoulder. There's, there's a water Cobra in a tub in that rack behind me um, that I can't every time I try to transition her into one of these PVCs that's behind me, she goes off food and that's a Mm -hmm. snake that if they don't eat for three, four weeks, you got problems. Um, But I'm slowly, but surely trying to get her into the PVC and uh, it, it just is what it is. So, that these animals that I mean I don't want to use the word imprint because animal behavior is that's a really big word in animal behavior but at the same time it's almost like there's a certain level of safety that's imprinted on these animals as they're developing um and for some they can do the transition and it's great but for others they, they don't and so I really want to kind of figure out what's going on there right because if you get the answer to that then you're really kind of digging in on the animal's welfare so
1: is there such thing as, say, just as that animal's nature? I mean, say maybe that animal's not fit for captivity. So say like you're even a Timor python is borderline there or like yeah. a halmira scrub, those things <laughs> that seem to be very, very recluse and yes. do pretty poorly in captivity.
0: Oh, there's definitely, I mean, there's there's snakes that don't do well. I, I don't see that many black racers in people's collections. Um, I had one of those back in college and uh and, and i picked it up at actually a local pet shop and the only way that i was able to keep it was i gave it a 125 gallon aquarium in our zoology i mean it had a tremendous amount of space and it was zooming all the time that's a species that i just i don't think's well well suited so like the natural history and the ecology of the snake in question does play a lot into whether it it thrives in in human care or not um And if you think, if you look at all the mainstays of herpetoculture, there are these, there's almost like a model that fits with snakes in particular, which is if you eat rodents, you're almost certainly going to be, you know, herpetoculture likes you because you eat the mainstay of our, you know, discipline. Uh, And then snakes that eat rodents and are ambush predators, oh man, you know, now we're cooking with gasoline because we have an animal that literally evolved to sit on a branch or sit in a coil on, you know, next to a tree stump and wait for something to come by. When you end up with animals, even the water cobras where they're active and they're moving and that's when we, we, we start to run into problems. So the water cobras adapt, you know, they're good for horticulture because they're ecological generalists. They eat anything. There is nothing those snakes won't eat. They'll eat frogs, birds, um, other snakes, pretty much anything they can overpower. So, you know, if you think about, I got to feed this thing, An animal with that kind of cosmopolitan diet is going to lend itself well to human care so you know there's there's a lot to this um that that's important and that i i i like when people think about this stuff like last week's podcast with rob was fantastic like you know the the people that are they're thinking more about you know this aspect of herpetoculture i feel like that's where the fun is uh and advancing that that's what we all should be trying to do
1: and now is there any any urge for you to go out and get any species that say is very historically hard to breed say like a boland's python or something that's not established in captivity and try to take a stab at that
0: yeah but you know I, I definitely by the end of my career would like to tackle some of those but the snakes that i'm interested in like nobody else is interested in there's There's this genus that's related to water cobras in South America called Thamnodynastes. I don't even know what their common name is, but they're these little rear fang snakes that are kind of related to um, hognose snakes. I would love to bring those in and rear them up, but they are literally a small brown snake. So, like, I don't know who (laughs) would even care. Um, uh, But no, uh, those kind of animals, yes. Uh, I think it's important for us to try to establish some of these animals and human care and not focus so much. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bashing morphs, but I think it's important for you to make sure you've got a real diverse gene pool when you're starting out. Cause you know, my other hat that I wear is I'm a conservation biologist. And what's funny is in my conservation biology role uh, with working with the endangered crayfish, you know, we do things like genetic management plans and we're trying to make things as genetically diverse as possible. So, I, I, it's fun because I'll go from like a whole day long conference call talking about how we're going to boost heterogeneity, how we're going to make this thing as diverse as possible. Then I'll ride home from West Liberty listening to a podcast where we're talking about line breeding the same siblings <laughs> to each other for the past 30 years. And it's like as polar opposite as you can possibly get. So, I, you know, that's one of the things I love about bringing it back to water cobras. There's really not that many morphs there yet. So, people are just kind of breeding them to breed them. And so we have a nice genetic stock uh, to work with. So if you're going to bring something in, I would argue, it's important to establish those genetics first. Like just because you bring in a female and she drops 20 young, and now you have 21 animals, that that doesn't necessarily mean that this breeding project is gonna last into perpetuity because there are, whether we want to accept it or not, there are absolutely inbreeding effects. Um, and, And these things can only go so, so far um so yeah just if if we're going to establish these things i think we definitely need to focus on trying to get the most heterogeneity possible. now if you can't then then so be it but if you can you should definitely try to do that so that's that's the way like my con bio brain works uh with with that kind of question
1: well and i think that's a good point and I mean, taking a breeder like me or a private breeder, mm-hmm. any private breeder out there, how can they take the steps to make sure that that's being that's being done?
0: I think that there's a lot to be said with hets, and you know, if you have that that gene that you want to to be the person for, um, and you have a clutch, if you got if you have a whole bunch of sisters. You might want to go to great lengths to breed each sister to a completely different male uh, if you have that luxury. So yeah, that gene in itself is pretty narrow. Um, It is very narrow. I mean, it's all like basically a whole bunch of siblings, but you're bringing at least a certain level of heterogeneity and, you know, we can go off into the weeds big time with this genetics conversation, but that that's a very basic straightforward strategy to kind of, add a little bit of genetic diversity to the mix so um but people you know you get heads everybody wants that magic you know the morph um and then we get the heads and, and some people like the heads but a lot of times we move the heads on and i think that those those heads at the base of a project at the beginning of a project are actually really important if you come up with the right strategy uh, so
1: now where does this end i mean if we don't do that i mean we have people breeding uh crested geckos for Uh a certain breed standard for a certain amount of crest and stuff like that or you have all these trying to put as many genes in as possible i mean where does all of that end i mean what do we end up with as as breeders in a private hobby
0: i think it, it really depends on the community that you're in um and by community i mean if you're into the the gargoyles, the cresteds, the balls, corns, carpets, you know, whatever it is, every community seems to freaking podcast I can because I teach these classes. And the fun thing is the most content comes from flipping podcasts. I don't have journal articles to read. I just have what you all have to say. And it seems like some groups are more into keeping tabs on the genetics and what's going on. And then other groups don't seem to care that much. I, I think that it just should be uh, ever present in everybody's mind. And and uh, a lot of po- co- uh, podcasts have talked about, you know, the conversation of calling individuals. So you have that individual that won't eat. If there is a pre- genetic predisposition to that, it that may not be the worst thing in the world if you're trying to establish a genetic line that has the most diversity, but also has the best traits for that species as far as herpetoculture is concerned. Um but no th- this is like fun stuff that that I, I I think people need to talk about way more than just I have a double head caramel super snow whatever. I mean I don't know any of that stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a thing. <laughs> so. uh, yes it is. <laughs> yeah, which is okay. sad
1: that you just threw that out there and it's mm-hmm. definitely a thing. But I mean, if you think about it, we've only been doing this in decent numbers for the last 20 years. I mean, I couldn't even imagine what's going to happen no. over time. Well,
0: I also think that people that have expertise in this, and it doesn't have to be a PhD biologist, uh, people in agriculture do this all the time. Uh, you know, Anybody that's breeding anything, that's, that's studied it and knows how, how it works, you always try to bring in new genetics. And so just as long as that's part of the practice, you know, you're going to be okay. It's just when you line breed for so long, you narrow that gene pool down to a certain degree, you know, you're going to have problems. And I've I've read some articles about, you know, inbreeding's fine in reptiles, it happens with island populations, and that is true, and you can get this thing that's called heterosis where you can get like the magic set of gene pairs that line up. And if you bring in new blood you, in, or new genes, in effect, you're going to bring in a deleterious gene, which with that narrow gene pool can cause the whole thing to implode. So that's, that is a legit thing. Uh, but when you look at those Island populations, they've probably taken a couple thousand years to figure all that out. Um, uh, and they're, they got a little bit of evolution kicking with them. Uh, when we're just trying to make, a pink or crested gecko that's not exactly the same mechanism as what's happening with those island populations that have figured out how to stain themselves with inbreeding like that's a evolutionary ecological response so uh yeah i just think it's good to outbreed i mean that that's just i'm a conservation biologist that's where my mind is so that's also why i have a very boring collection by some people's standards but they're all you know to my knowledge, I got a lot of genetic diversity sitting in those enclosures behind me. So,
1: now I guess another another aspect of keeping a bunch of animals and keeping them all on top of each other is potential uh, things like viruses. I mean, uh-huh. have you have you gotten in contact or have you researched anything about, say, like crypto or Nidovirus or any of those?
0: Oh, have I studied crypto? <laughs> uh, that's actually one of the major research efforts at West Liberty. So, um, and. You know i just hopped up on my soapbox when it comes to crypto uh we had crypto hit our collection at west liberty um i'm not ashamed of that i don't think anybody needs to be ashamed of that i think one of the biggest issues with crypto and nido and our python uh what's the new name for nido virus um anyway
1: i, I went to the damn conference where you yeah, talked about it it's I all know. good uh so virus no, so that's,
0: that's it yeah okay i, I think i learned something transparency and talking these things through and letting people know, like, yo, I've got it. I I understand the economic monetary aspect. And, you know, I certainly don't want to purchase anything that has crypto, but we're not going to figure out how to deal with these things until we start talking about it. So when crypto hit our collection at West Liberty, um, we had one corn snake regurgitate in Iraq. And I thought, okay, this isn't good. Uh, And this was in February of um, 2019. Team, and then about three days later we had two more corn snakes regurgitate and then i thought something's going on here and then all freaking hell broke loose and make a very long story short we lost every corn snake in the collection died of it we had black tailed you know not the cheapest snakes in the world and our students loved them they went down uh we lost uh well our males um, died from that uh, and so I just decided like, hey, i got to figure out what this is. I didn't know it was crypto at the time. I thought it was crypto. So we did this thing called a PCR where you can look at DNA and um, figure out what you're dealing with. And sure enough, we did the PCR. It came back as Cryptosporidium Serpentis. And ever since then, we've been studying it intensively. Now, there are people that know more about this. I'm an ecologist. I'm not a pathologist. I don't do disease or anything like that. But this kind of forced me to do it. And basically, very, very, very straightforward. When we started testing everything for crypto, it was one of those, damn, this is kind of everywhere. And I've gotten lots of snakes in. And now we do crypto tests at West Liberty because we can. And you'd be amazed at the number of snakes that we come in that we set, like we ask the question, does this have anything from the breeder? And the breeder says no. And then I do a test, and it's got crypto in it. So I think crypto, just using crypto as an example, I think that is far more prevalent in people's collections than we all want to know. The problem with it is you can have asymptomatic animals, and we all know what that means now. Thank you, COVID. And those animals can hold that and not show any sign or of symptom, nothing, um, for their entire lives. And what I realized is we had a real diverse collection at West Liberty was the, the pathogenicity of this disease was insane in that, my true colubrids, um, what would be you know back in the day with the old taxonomy, I mean, the fit, subfamily Colubridae, which were pitchophis, you know Pantherophis, drymarkin, our crypto just killed them, like they just got it and died. And but our other snakes, like the dipsadids, uh, which are things like water cobras and barons racers and museranas, we had those, no evidence of it at all. And we didn't have anybody pop positive. And what's really interesting is I had a water cobra that was surrounded by corn snakes. Like every single corn snake around this uh, water cobra died from crypto. And that water cobra, and we've, we did a PCR on its poo back in the day. No crypto. We've done antigen tests out the wazoo. No crypto. And we still have it. And it showed no sign. And I don't know if it ever ended up with it. So we, we need to as herpetocultrists, figure these things out. Like, what is going on here? Why is this thing so... Why did it wipe out the corn snakes and it didn't do anything to the water cobras? Uh, Is it going to do something to them later? Like, I don't know any of this kind of stuff. But if we just get these diseases and then don't talk about them, you know, we're not going to learn anything. One of the studies I want to do in the future is just broadcast across social media. Send me your snake shit. (laughs) Like, literally... I will test it and we will keep this anonymous and I just want to see how many crypto positive poops I get. Um our pythons none of our pythons got crypto. They were in the same room as the corn snakes and the black tailed crebos. So it, you know, that tells me that there's a lot going on there.
1: And Mike had a good question. He said to control the outbreak initially did you end up uh, euthanizing those animals okay. or did you let it go its course?
0: So, what I did is once I identified things as crypto, we moved those animals immediately to another place on campus, like they just left. And then we had them, and I didn't know that much at the time. so you know I my wife actually has a master's degree in microbiology, and she's a bio major too. And so you know our two worlds came together with this crypto thing, and I would come home from work and just ask her a million questions. Um, but i I, I basically, read online and and kathy got me some articles and helped me out with this but it basically said like you got to euthanize them um and i didn't really want to euthanize them but we did ultimately euthanize most of them um we had some animals that were asymptomatic and so we moved those animals to a room and they're still in that room to this day and they're actually what we're studying and uh doing the deep dive there was there's a antibiotic called paramomycin and uh, the Bronx Zoo got a King Cobra in that had crypto, and they were able to treat it with paromamycin. So we called our vet and was like, I need like a metric ton of this stuff. <laughs> Get me as much of it as possible. And uh, we started treating our animals, and we had some black milk snakes. And we actually have treated them with paromamycin, and they they were popping positive with cryptosporidium. And after giving them the paro, they, we didn't. We don't have crypto in those snakes anymore. So I don't want people to hear that and be like, oh, this is the end all be all because I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is like, that's a great example of where there's just not been that much science. Like people haven't tackled this um, disease. The, the normal response to crypto is, oh, God, I've got it. Burn the house down and we're just going to euthanize everybody. Uh, but the thing is, unless you're testing all those animals, um, you could have carriers in your collection and you're never going to know unless you test them. And then that insult to injury, if you're using antigen tests, much like the COVID tests, those are only successful about 80% of the time. So you can totally get a negative, And in reality, your animal has it. So the, the best way to determine whether you've got crypto or not is to send fecal samples off to a lab and do this thing called PCR, where you're actually going to look at the, take the endospore out of the um, Sorry, take the spore out of the feces and then break it open, get its DNA, and then use DNA test to figure out if it's in there. But one of my grad students is um, studying crypto for her thesis. So we're, 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 we've got those crypto snakes still, and we're, we're studying them. It's horrifying because we have, in a separate building from our main collection, we intentionally are keeping snakes alive that have crypto. They're not suffering. None of these things are, sympto- they're always symptomatic. Um, But we're kind of using them to to ask some questions and maybe get to some answers.
1: And now that's something that you can test for, obviously, Mm -hmm. reliably. And um, even even that animal that, say, you had treated, Mm -hmm. um, it's continuing to to test um, negative
0: Mm -hmm. for it. And and one thing that and this is one of the one of the other soapboxes I have is I don't necessarily think that. The approach of we're going to euthanize everything right off the bat is the best. If you have symptomatic animals and they've got the bulge in their stomach and they're regurgitating their prey items and you got pure liquefied feces, it's probably best for that animal to be euthanized. Because every time those animals go to the bathroom, they're releasing millions, tens of millions of spores. And the the number of spores needed for a snake to get crypto is we don't know that, but for other animals that that get crypto, it's been studied that you can have as few as five to ten spores um, end up inside the snake. or sorry, end up in the animal, assuming this goes for snakes as well. And then they have a cryptosporidium infection. So if you have your animals that are asymptomatic, what we have found is that when we you know all the species we have treated, we've treated barons, racers, um, we've treated uh, some corn snakes some bull snakes and some black milks. When we treat them with the paramomycin, it seems to do something. We don't know what exactly it's doing, but in all of those taxa, we at least lose the super wet um, fecal response. And then our rate of regurgitation seems to go down. Uh, if, But if the infection gets to a certain degree, there's no hope. So those no hope animals, sure, Get everybody out that you think has crypto into a whole other floor, preferably a separate building, and then make sure you're working with those animals last. Uh, like we, do, I just whenever we do crypto work at school, I don't even come in here for two days. Like I just stay out of here, not one day, two days, because I don't want to deal with it. But no, it's a that's a that's something I feel that if we were more transparent and open, and we kind of unified and people started studying this thing we could get a handle on it because like i said the paros seems to be doing something and and prior to that pub there wasn't much and i guess i should touch on this getting rid of crypto uh, crypto on the forums I, i've seen like anytime the word crypto pops up on any of the facebook pages or anything like that i i you know dive right in and I refuse to get involved because a couple times I've tried to throw in my two cents and then got flamed. And I'm like, I don't have time for this. Bleach, <laughs> someone and, with a lot more credentials than you, you know, I'm sure. Yes, exactly. Um, bleach doesn't do anything to Cryptosporidium. It it just it tickles it. That's all it does. I mean, you're not going to like hurt it in any way. Uh, ammonia will kill the spores. Well, it actually is deactivating the spores. Um, but it has to have a contact time in excess of 12 hours. So the best thing is hydrogen peroxide that's like 10 to 12%. Um, and and this isn't like the little bottle you buy at CVS. Uh, that's like, I think it's at six or something like that. That doesn't really do anything. You have to get the medical grade hydrogen peroxide and that will deactivate the spores in about 10, 15 minutes. It also will turn your hands bleach white and it hurts like a son of a bitch when you get it on you because it causes a chemical burn. And that's coming from real world experience. Um, And uh, that's the one thing when we had, when we did our great big decon of the room, um, we put peroxide into misters at that high concentration. And we were just zapping everything with it. And we're like breathing this crap in and our lungs are on fire. I mean, it was awful. It was awful. The other thing that will deactivate the spores, which a lot of people don't realize, and there's been a lot of science that shows this, is sunlight. So if you have an enclosure that you think has crypto in it, hit it with the hydrogen peroxide first, like that's the big one. But then if you take that outside on a day where the UV index is high, sunlight is proven to be very lethal to cryptosporidium. Um, And so one of the things that we did is we took every enclosure in that room uh, when we did our great big decon of the the snake lab. uh, And I spent my spring break doing this. We zapped everything with hydrogen peroxide and it was convenient that a polar vortex hit us that in 2019. So it was like negative 19 outside and sunny, and it was beautiful. So we just took all the enclosures out. And we would rotate them, the grad students and I, about once every four or five hours. Uh, and then, you know, we brought them back in and, and we haven't had any incidences since. But it's a scary thing. It's a very, very scary thing. I mean, I understand now why, you know, people say crypto and snake keepers shudder. And it's also in leopard geckos. Um it's recently been found in bearded dragons. There's a bird strain of cryptosporidium that was documented recently in bearded dragons. So no, we know there, there's an awful lot to be done with that. You know,
1: you know, what's funny, I think at least in the Colubrid world, you never really see it come up anymore. I think everyone just kind of ignores it.
0: Yeah. No, everybody like hush, hush. Uh, Well, but the fun thing is like hognose snakes, the, that's one where people do talk about crypto a bit now and it's, um, there's Cryptosporidium serpentis, which is the one that gets into snakes. And then there's one called Cryptosporidium Varinae. Uh, Cryptosporidium Varinae and Cryptosporidium sarophyllum are the same species, by the way. So um but varinae is interesting in that it is the lizard crypto, but that's the one that seems to be most deleterious to hognose snakes now. So that kind of shows that even though we have these names like snake crypto, lizard crypto, it it can interchange. And then the crazy thing is when we did our PCR on the crypto with our snakes, um, that's the same thing that I use when I'm describing a new species of crayfish. So uh, molecular phylogenetics people will get DNA from all these different organisms and they put it up on this thing called GenBank. And you can do this thing called blasting where you take your, your nucleotide sequence and then you blast it against GenBank and it'll come back basically, this is the organism that's most similar to your reed. And with our snakes, We were actually getting like Cryptosporidium uh, novum, which basically means new species of crypto. So the reality of this is there's probably multiple species of crypto floating around in our reptiles right now that are just totally new to science that no one's even described.
1: And are these things mutating? I mean, is that possible?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a a protozoan. Well, yeah, protozoan, I believe. Um, So it's not like a bacteria or a virus or something like that, but they absolutely will get a little bit of mutation and then, you know, speciate and turn into something else, just like everything else will. And if you want to, one of the most difficult things I've ever done as a biologist was try to understand the life cycle of crypto. It is insane. They they get inside of the of an organism and then they undergo asexual reproduction. And then some of those things that butt off, they undergo sexual reproduction and we have Organisms that are staying in the gut and others are being shed in the feces. I mean, it's a very complicated organism for a little round sphere that causes panic and death. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: And now, I guess, on the other uh, depressing news, uh, mm-hmm. Nido, have you had any experience with that or?
0: Uh, not yet. I, it could have been there. We don't. We have not. We have yet to have a respiratory infection um, in anything other than one of our womas had it and the woma the woma had the respiratory infection right after southeast carpet fest with that panel that was put on youtube and you could like listen to the talk and i had listened to that talk like that morning and went to school and i saw the drool in the Woma, and i was like oh god (laughs) (laughs) but it turned out Uh that i don't think that it it had it um uh, because none of the other pythons have gotten it. Uh, but it, I, I will say that that makes me question, like, should we really have all these pythons together or should we be, you know, moving them on? We are. Uh, next fall, my goal is to have everybody tested for everything in our collection. So but to so far, to my knowledge, we don't have we've, we have not experienced that. The only thing that we've really had to deal with was the crypto. And I, I, I think I have it under control, but I'm not gonna say I do because I'm not that arrogant. Like this this thing is it's it's uh it's it's a lurker and it's scary. So
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> invisible. It can yes. be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I guess I guess moving on to to better and brighter things. Yes. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about uh getting Bar- Baron Barron's racers. I mean, have you hatched out Baron's racers yet?
0: Oh. Um I'm, I'm actually pumped for the bear and I, uh, we've tried, we've had 2.2 for a real long time. Um, and that's another species that, uh, you know, the male did his thing pretty much instantly. Um, but we weren't able to ever get an ovulation and then eggs. And now that we have them, well, we're pumped. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for those. So we shall see.
1: Are those being incubated similarly to, uh, the false water Cobra eggs? Regular lubricant temps or
0: yep, 82.5. They're in that incubator. And we are, you know, I'm I'm patiently awaiting. I'm not patient at all. I want them to hatch. I'm (laughs) scared to death of something happening with our incubators or you know, anything like that. And the female that actually produced the clutch is really interesting um in that she's almost jet black. She's really weird. She's not like a typical um Baron's racer. I just said to the the breeder I'd like to get you know a female from you because I, I we I bought every individual uh from different people hoping to have different genetics and you know I got this snake when I pulled it out of the bag I was like why are you black that are you a baron eye and it had the little you know nose thing going down and sure enough you know she's a baron and- Baron's racer, and I've seen a couple since like her, but she's pretty unique. So the the babies are going to be neat because the male is just your classic green male. But I'm I'm curious to see if that's a genetic trait or not.
1: And do they have another genetic color change? Do they start off a different coloration as babies? Yeah,
0: they pretty much look like the adults. Uh, they might be a little bit lighter color than they normally are when they hatch out. But uh, the hatchlings that I, you know, purchased way back when are the pretty much the same color as adults that they were when they were young. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mike in the chat is saying, sounds like Joe subtly wants us, uh, <laughs> which is very true. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah. Who knows? Might happen.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> so what are you, uh, what are you doing as far as keeping those guys? Cause I mean, I've seen some people keep them in, uh, I mean, cohabbing uh, UV lighting, and it seems like they use a bunch yeah. of space and stuff. So how are you keeping those guys?
0: We, we, don't we keep those in big pvc enclosures so uh the i'm trying to think we actually had animal plastics build us some enclosures that were kind of custom so i think that those are in and this, they're in six foot long two foot tall two foot wide big enclosures and we usually load them up with sticks and all kinds of you know leaves and things like that and the 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 awesome thing about Baron Joyce, they're actually one of my top 10 favorite snakes is that's a snake that if you give it you know all that cage decoration it will use it all um i actually raised the first pair in my office i had a one of those really big exoterras uh and i I threw them in there i had two females that I raised together um and i had pothos living in there and branches and uh, a whole bunch of um random cork tubes set up at different you know, altitudes in the tank and they would come out every day with the timer came on, they come out and bask in a coil. And then once they got the temperature, they were zooming, you know, all day long. And the feeding response on those can also be all those South American snakes, the Baron tracers, um, false water cobras. We haven't talked about them yet, but Musseranos, we have those too. Uh, They all have ridiculous responses to prey. So the bear and I, Um, You you have to keep your wits about you because when they know foods about, you know, they, they almost look like birds to me, you know, and and you open up the enclosure and they're on the, the prey item immediately. I have the irony in this is I, I purchased for West Liberty, two young Baron's racers before I knew I was going to get 21 eggs, which kind of (laughs) sucked, but uh, I wanted to raise one more pair. So we would actually have 3.3 because we want to do some behavioral stuff with those. Uh, But my little guys right now, Same thing, you know, took them a little while to get past their shyness, but now they're taking the fuzzies right off the forceps. Uh,
1: Any idea how those will be right out of the egg eating wise?
0: They're probably going to be little nightmares. I don't know. Um, I've heard that you got to do some braining with your pinkies, and I've also heard that they're pretty easy. Uh, So I haven't really had the time to do a big deep dive into raising them fresh out of the egg but i'm assuming that you know we may have to do some lizard scenting uh we have every scent and flavor of reptilinks at school that you could ever hope for so i'm not too we, we probably have what we need it's just figuring out what we need for them we also have a clutch of muserana's uh Bo- Runa immaculata on the way and those are those can be a little bit um nutty to get onto pinks because they're obligate snake eaters right out of the egg Um, And we're we're keeping all of our corn snake sheds to make little pinky snake shed sleeping bags to basically make you know put the pinky up in there so they have some snake scent. Either that or
1: someone will have to uh, donate some of their offspring that they're going to use for their Mm -hmm. research uh, to keep those little guys going.
0: Mm -hmm. But we're we're, we that clutch isn't on the ground yet. Uh, We just the the female has increased in mass by a couple hundred grams and she's looking pretty large. So fingers crossed, uh, we get those.
1: So is that, uh, as an obligate snake eater pairing those guys up, is that something oh. that is uh, scary?
0: Yeah, it's scary. Uh, most of the snakes, when we paired them up, it was kind of a put them together and walk away. But with the Mooseys, I, I stood there with the student and you know, I'm like, all right, we're going to watch this. And, um, well, the females considerably larger than our male, but our, our male was the one that tried to eat the female, which she just kind of looked at him when he started. At first I thought it was like a nuptial thing. To, as you know, lots of colubrids will kind of nip and bite. But when he's biting her right in the middle of the back and he's not trying to copulate with her, I thought, okay, this is wrong. Like this is this is not going correctly. Um, but he tried, you know, he didn't even try to constrict her. He just chewed on her a little bit. And then I, I got, I was getting ready to like break him apart and then he let go. And then it was like, oh well, this is a female. And the next thing you know, he's copulating with it. So uh, I think for a little bit there, he didn't know what the hell was in his enclosure. Um, but yeah. That's still not a, not a fun experience. No. Mm-mm. Well, you know, my heart kind of went pitter patter. And of all the snakes that we have, they're the ones that probably have the most um, uh, potent bite, I would say. I mean, they they don't bite. That's the thing. People get lulled into a false sense of security, but uh, Boiruna, if they do get you and they chew on you a little bit, you you have some problems there. It's you know, Copperhead bites worse, but you're gonna swell and ache, and your lymph nodes are gonna blow up, and um, it's gonna be a little bit rough. So, reaching in there, trying to disarticulate the two snakes that were, you know, one at the time that was a little bit nerve wracking, but it's all good.
1: You know, so, now does their, does their venom affect other snakes and then not yeah. their own? Um,
0: we don't really know the answer to that. I mean, there's, with, well, with, with Mooses, it's important to know that there's the genus, uh, ah, Clea, I can't really say that, which is what most people think about. And then there's this other group with, with the black boi Boiruna. Um, the Boiruna aren't as potent to other snakes as the other genera. The other genera, I mean, it's just, you know, some of those are very, deadly to their prey um with baruna it seems like they bite something and then they are immediately constricting it and the constriction mm-hmm. is killing the prey item just as much as the venom is and one fun thing about uh black museranas uh is when they constrict something i've never seen a snake make such a perfect coil around the prey item as one of those guys uh they 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 remind me of king snakes just that are rear fanged and venomous i mean yeah if you well I know you've worked with king snakes, they're also as spastic as king snakes around food, so there's that,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's always great uh, yeah. when you when you feed them a mouse and you get the quill all the way yes. the whole length of the
0: mouse yeah, they absolutely do that um it's, <laughs> it's pretty awesome, yeah
1: now, how often are you hitting them with food? I mean as much as you are those false water cobras no,
0: the false water cobras I feed those uh much more than everybody else. they're they're like every seven to ten days. Um, something like that. No. The the falsies, the only reason why I fed those is I, I kind of did this nerd deep dive where there wasn't like I just went online and the exact same things I would normally do to get information on crayfish if I was doing one a project with them, I did that with water cobra. So I think I've read everything I can that's come out of the literature. And there was this really cool feeding study, and this is why I came up with maybe they need to eat more, where they had looked at snakes that were killed on roads. And then they looked at all the water cobras that were in museums in South America. And there's this metric you do if you're an ecologist called your vacuity frequency. And what that is is it's the frequency of individuals that has an empty stomach. And you can use that frequency to kind of dictate whether you eat a lot. You don't eat that much. And most snakes have a relatively low uh or sorry, they have a relatively high vacuity f- frequency. Like they basically rarely have anything in their gut. And with these things, water cobras had an insane uh, value in that it was like 83% of water cobras had something in their stomach. And there were females that had full complements of eggs that also had full stomachs. So it kind of shows this is just an animal that has a ridiculously fast metabolism. Um, So I used, you know, the science drove the husbandry in that situation. And that's what I try to do whenever I can, because I like doing that nerdy, geeking out thing it's kind of fun
1: and then you kind of mentioned that you did some research into the habitat that they're from to kind of get an idea of the temperatures i mean how do you how do you look at that and try to make a decision because obviously there's things like microclimate and stuff that come into come into account so i mean where did you really come across that number so
0: I, i i the way i did it and this is just the way i did it you don't have to do things this way. I just came up with it. Is first thing is I tried to figure out where the snakes were coming from, and that was actually really difficult. Um, but there were some people that had worked with the animals for a while that said that most of the stock in America probably came from Bolivia and Paraguay because those are countries where the snakes are really common, and they've had exportation, importation. Um, the other, you know, countries Brazil, but Brazil's borders have been shut down for ever in a day um so that's where i came up with all right well i'm gonna look at paraguay and i'm gonna look at um the other country i just did a, a brain fart on it but anyway and i went on to iNaturalist and i typed in false water cobra and then up popped all these pictures of false water cobras so that i'm like all right now i know where they actually live like i know this person took a picture of a water cobra in this swamp in Paraguay. So then I looked for the closest city. And then once I found the closest city, I just used one of the you know, many different, I don't know which one, but it was one of the weather websites where you can type in a country across the planet. And then I looked at the average highs and lows. And yes, microclimate's absolutely part of it. And so the, here's actually how I came up with that. I then read the literature and the literature said very clearly this is not a snake that spends its time underneath a stump most of the time i mean these animals are moving so and there's there's plenty of documentation for that uh, and so if, if they're moving i can make the assumption it's an assumption i fully am admitting it's an assumption that it's probably going to be moving around in its environment um and if the environment's average temperature is blah Then maybe i should do that but because i gave them these huge enclosures you can actually give the snakes microclimates so by putting in there a really big hide box and filling it with sphagnum moss a wet hide that's going to be a little bit cooler than the hot end of the enclosure Um, and so i just tried to make the hot end a little bit above the average temperature uh, for that time of year and then you know that's what led to me cycling and like i said I definitely had more eggs this year than I did last year. Is it because I did this? I don't know, but, you know, I'm doing it again because it seems to have done something in and my, and, and the animals also got a break because I, I was, I was thinking like, I want to keep these things for as long as possible. Do they have a period where they're inactive? And I was able to find another journal article that showed, yes, there was one time a year where they didn't have stuff in their gut. So because I have that journal article, I'm able to then take, the data from the field and directly augment it to my husbandry practice. So that's how I've tried to to take care of my animals. And I also feel like when you do things like that, it just makes this so much more rewarding because it's, you know, you're learning so much about um, the critter in the process. And, and that's, you know, it's just fun. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I'm a nerd and I like this stuff. So geeking out about it, why not do it?
1: Yeah, I think that's really where a lot of the people who say may listen to this kind of show or people who keep, you know, rare pythons and stuff like that. It's mm-hmm. just as much going into the natural history of the animal yes. at that point than it is, you know, to keep it in a plastic bin. I mean, these things don't come from deli cuffs. <laughs> yeah. um, so, yeah. so I think uh, for a lot of us, I mean, that's where we seek uh, or where we find our enjoyment. in yes. this.
0: Absolutely. I agree with that 100%.
1: So speaking of which, or speaking of not coming from Deli Cups, I mean, you've done plenty of, uh, I, I guess it would be research uh, overseas. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I mean, I saw on Facebook that you had uh, an encounter with a certain frog, and I believe it was Costa Rica.
0: Yes. I've actually only gone herping once overseas, and it was this past spring break, believe it or not. That's what happens when you jump from snakes to crayfish, and their epicenter diversity is Tennessee so like my amazon <laughs> jungle is knoxville
1: um, i guess that's nice yeah you didn't have to go yeah. anywhere for long periods of time but
0: or... i didn't get to costa rica at the neotropics till i was in my 40s um because i'm 41 now so you no know, we i led my first trip you know of all the years for me to lead an international trip over spring break i of course do it when there's a global pandemic uh so i, I you know I had to negotiate, but I was able to get us out the door, and we got to Costa Rica, and uh, that was at the beginning of March through about like the 12th, 13th, so it was right when all this was going down, but uh, I I picked a group, which was great, uh, that basically let us do a lot of engagement. It wasn't a canned trip. Like like the first half of our our, uh, spring break trip, we were on this beach and we had to like take a boat an hour in it, or sorry, about half an hour you know, upriver and we we're just dumped on this random beach. There was no Wi-Fi, no electricity. It was beautiful in the Atlantic Coastal Forest. But my big thing as a teacher is my favorite thing as a professor is to take people outside um, and teach them out there because that's where my first love is, is out in nature. And the first night. No. Yes. This was the second night we were in there. Uh, we're running around at nighttime. And we're walking to the, the boats to go look for Cayman uh, out on the river at night. And as we're walking down the path to the boats, I saw shine and I looked and there sitting on the ground is something I like, wanted to see my whole life. I don't know the common name for this thing, but it's Latin names, Leptodactylus um, savage eye. It's a, it's a big brown frog that lives in Costa Rica. It looks like a bullfrog, but it lives on the forest floor and a lot of hurt people know this frog for its behavior because it will eat anything which is cool but the other thing is it has this badass anti-predatory mechanism where when it is bitten it screams and it just keeps screaming and it does that to draw in you know larger predators to eat whatever's eating it it's like this last ditch effort at survival so i saw the frog i made my students stop and i like ran up caught the frog and then I knew it would do the screaming. So I brought it back to the group and I flipped it over on its back and I kind of tickled its belly. And as I'm doing that, sure enough, after about you know two, three seconds, it starts going. Rah, rah, rah. I mean, it's just screaming its head off. And as a professor, it doesn't get any better than this. Because like nine times out of the out of ten, and I and environmental educators know this more than anybody. When you say this animal does this, and then you prompt it to do it, it just doesn't do it. So the fact that it actually didn't make me look like an idiot was great. So this frog screaming, I put it down, you know, hops off into the jungle all as well. So fast forward 20 minutes. Now it's 20, 30 minutes later, we're on the boat ride, riding up to where the Caymans are and um, a bug flew in my eye. And so, you know, I'm going to get it out of my eye. So I took that same hand. I tickled the frog with, <sighs> that sounds weird. <laughs> and, and I went to rub my eye to get the the bug out. And I had this like, this kind of warm sensation took over my eyeball and then it immediately felt like I had about 150 paper cuts on my cornea and I was washing it out with rubbing alcohol. And I knew immediately that was stupid. <coughs> and this freaking hurts And you know, I've been bit by monitor lizards. I've been, I've had rocks fall on me when we're crayfish. Um, collecting that hit my kneecap and bent my leg in a weird way I've rolled down mountains. I've done all that kind of stuff in the field. This was like without question, the most painful thing that has ever happened to me and it was from a damn frog. Like, you know, (laughs) later on that night, I'm catching caimans and they're not, you know, I wasn't afraid of those. So when we got back, we saw the frog. I was like, Oh God, don't touch that thing. Like it was, it was bad. And what ultimately ended up happening though, which is kind of crazy is I had so much of the poison on my fingers from tickling the damn thing that, My eyeball kind of swelled shut with all the, like, mucus from my eye. Then I could feel my sinus cavities perfectly. Like, if you would have handed me a Sharpie, I could have outlined where they were. They started to kind of close in. And then I had this never-ending river of snot coming out of my nose. Like, it was just (laughs) – I was a mess. So, uh, luckily, somebody had contact solution, solution in their pack, and we were able to flush my eyeball out but no, it was, it was rough. And so, you know, later on we're in the jungle and they're like, oh, there's jaguars. I was like, screw the jaguars. Those are nothing. There's that damn frog again. Like stay the (laughs) hell away from that thing. Um, but yeah, you know, I learned something. We saw poison dart frogs on the trip obviously didn't touch those, even though they don't really too much, the species that we were seeing, but no, it was, it was an absolutely great time. Luckily that happened early. I did get my sight back after about five six hours there was a little while there where i was thinking like this is bad <laughs> like i may not see out this eye again like you know
1: i, is got that, I mean is that is that something that you would expect i mean did you do know yes. it secreted well, toxins and...
0: what was funny is i'm on the boat and i rub my eye and it starts to hurt and then you know i'm I'm immediately troubleshooting like why does my eye hurt and i distinctly remember being on the boat going why does my eye eye hurt son of a bitch, the frog like it was immediate like i knew exactly what it was i knew better i you know i i knew what was going on and the funny thing is we got back to camp and we had the, the this field guide amphibians to costa rica and i immediately went to the species account on savage eye and i'm reading it and if you read that account it says wind grass produces a toxin, which can be painful in the eye. And I was like, that is the freaking (laughs) understatement of the year. Like I wanted to take my eyeball out of my head. Like that's how bad it hurt. So anyway,
1: yeah. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan looked up the common name. It is the smoky jungle frog.
0: All right, there we go. Yes. But it's fantastic animal. Um, yeah.
1: What else or what were you going to see there in particular? Was there any species that was target?
0: Um, there really wasn't a target. The the point was our students, I wanted them to get what's called in situ conservation experience. So I wanted them to basically like I can teach them all you want about a rainforest and biodiversity and all that. But if you're it's one thing to see it on a PowerPoint slide, it's another thing to be in it. And that's I'm all about immersion learning. Like I want people in it. Um and I basically was like, it's been too long and I need to go on a trip and see these things myself. So uh, we were on the beach for sea turtles, Uh, leatherback sea turtles come up onto that beach. So we helped dig this great big incubation pit thing. We didn't see any sea turtles, but we saw plenty of other cool stuff. And then what we did is we um, halfway through, we drove to the other side of Costa Rica. And when we went over there, we were working in this wonderful animal sanctuary called Natua and I, anybody who goes to Costa Rica needs to go to Natua, uh, and that was amazing, because they had mammals and birds, they didn't really have any herps, but they more than made up for it, because what they did at this place is they basically let the forest grow up in the, in the um, animal sanctuary, so there were herps everywhere, just on the ground, like, walking around, like, one of my kids was like, there's a coral snake, and I was like, what? And sure enough, there's a freaking coral snake. I was like, oh. Uh, and we did see, we saw two species of corals while we were there, which was awesome. Um, but we saw the, uh, I think it's called the Central American Coach Whip. They have a Coach Whip down there, Mastocopus, mm. that's not um, the same species we have up here. We saw a monster, one of those, in a tree. It was pushing seven feet. Uh, Leptodira, which is a wolf. Uh, cat-eyed snakes, one of the like five million things called cat-eyed snakes around the planet. Um, but these are a little thing that kind of, they, they do re- represent, or, sorry, they kind of look like Boyga, but we found quite a few of those. There were scorpions everywhere, which was just fantastic. But the, we got to work with all the animals too. So we were with tapirs and we got to, um, you know, shift jaguars and you know, it was, it was incredible. Um, so I, we will be going back, Like that's just all there is to it. You know, I, I just that this is all happening while the pandemic was exploding. If you remember, it was the beginning of March. So, like, Oof. we didn't have Wi Fi. And one of the most surreal moments of my life was going to where the Wi Fi was and turning my, you know, getting my phone all hooked up and Reading that, like Trump closed the border, and I thought that was an Onion article. Like I thought, ha ha ha, that's not true. <laughs> and then I was like, holy crap, that's CNN. Like this is real. <laughs> and you we know? are we are <laughs> over the border at the moment. And We are in Costa Rica, but you know, then I I, I read in a little bit more and realized, okay, you know, Americans could come back. But for a minute there, it was a little, a little, a little scary. One the you other thing that quarantined. We, well, we you all I, I made everybody quarantine as part of the class, uh, I take COVID very seriously. I'm one of those people biologists. So everybody, when we got back, we, we quarantined for two weeks. Uh, but that was also the time when all the quarantining was beginning. So like I thought I was going to be in my house for two weeks by myself and then my wife's high school teacher. So she wasn't teaching and then Colin, my son, he was here. So like I'm quarantining with everybody else. So I don't know how good of a quarantine it was, but anyway, so yeah. Two
1: weeks and I'll be free. Yeah.
0: You know? Yes. What's that? Yeah. Two weeks into 10 more weeks. So, but no, um, I, but to be honest, that changed my perspective on herpeticulture because I like naturalistic, you know, husbandry. That's something I'm into. And it was really neat. Uh, they had a temp gun and I grabbed one of their temp guns and I walked over and I just wanted to see like what the temperature profile was of this tree that had all these, uh, lianas or vines and bromeliads growing on it. And it was crazy when I like this was at about two in the afternoon when it is just hot, because when we were down there on the west side of Costa Rica, that's the hottest time of year for them. And the tree in the sun was like pushing 95 degrees, I think, surface temp. But then I zapped right behind one of the bromeliads that was growing and it was all the way down around 70. So there was this like 20 degree differential in about seven inches. So it really, you know, when you think about that, and then you have these plastic boxes that we put one light in, you know, these animals, they might live where it gets to be 105 degrees, but they might be living in a thermal profile that never gets above 90 voluntarily. So, uh, but that was really eye-opening, you know, so it was cool.
1: Yeah, I think that's what what makes it so interesting and so tricky at the same time that not only Mm are all those different temperatures available, but I mean, you have animals that at least in captivity will pick security over temperature Mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe, um, you know, how does that play out in the wild and how can we better allow all those things to happen? I don't know. I don't know if we can allow all those little nuances in something with one hide and newspaper. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I I don't think that it's, I don't think it's possible if you the smaller spaces that you have. So like an eight quart tub versus a 32 quart tub, those are, you could get microclimates in the 32 quart tub. I don't know if it's possible to get legitimate seven or nine degree temperature differentials in that small little plastic tub. But I also don't think it's possible to get those temperature differentials in a small little PVC enclosure either. So, you know, it's the volume of space I think that matters more so than anything.
1: Gotcha so as far as setups and everything go is there anything that you're seeing uh, species that do benefit from from UV don't benefit
0: avoid it or um yeah. our, well you know we have UV on everything at Westlib minus our snakes currently but we're fixing that in the fall um I've done some kind of anecdotal experiments with the snakes and I have in my office at at work, I've got those great big T25s. And I got one of the mercury vapor bulbs that emits UVB and UVA, like all the different, the full spectrum lights. And I put it up above uh, the cage. So it kind of, I I had my meter and I got it dialed into what it should be. So I wasn't like (laughs) dosing the water Cobra with enough UVB to give it cancer and kill it. Um, And what was really interesting, just with the water Cobras is, I would move the light because that particular enclosure has three different 10 inch diameter lamp spots. And wherever I moved the light to, after it had UVB for about two, three months, it took it a while, but after two to three months, wherever it was, that's where it would go first thing in the morning. Uh, and it absolutely followed it. Um, and I have the data on that to, to show that. And I thought, oh, I'm onto something, you know? And then I swapped out water cobras for that enclosure, and the next water cobra, didn't give a crap at all. Like there was no pattern whatsoever, but I brought that original water Cobra back and it followed the UVB wherever I put it. So it kind of shows that there's not only, you know, I don't think that we can make grandiose statements yet. The, The people that have looked at the blood chemistry of snakes definitely show that there's a difference. And there's one paper And actually, the last time I was on your podcast, we were talking about this. And so I got like five different people that messaged me about this. And I I basically said, like, UVB will help the snakes. And then five different people messaged me about the infamous UVB paper with ball pythons that showed it doesn't do anything with them. And it doesn't do anything with them based off the way they did the paper. But there's been some vets over in um, the UK that have done similar analyses but they've looked at the blood chemistry slightly different and they were they you know it was demonstrated that there is something going on uh here so you know good stuff i gotta plug my computer in or else we're gonna you know be done but
1: yeah go for it Can i do that real quick yeah (laughs) yeah so i think it's it's always interesting to because uh, actually, in Ryan's in the chat, we were talking about this earlier that uh, about pretty much most snakes have so have shown benefits from from UV. And then I I brought up the study and and I wasn't trying to. I was actually just I said everyone benefits from UV. And then I saw that study actually on ball pythons. Like, oh, turns out they don't benefit or have seen no benefit from that study. So that's interesting to know um, that there's actually probably studies that are debunking that or adding to it or whatever the the case may be but i think it it goes to the fact that they don't just always live in termite mounds 24 7 and uh yeah you know and then necessarily the uh the whole argument the tub argument is out the window even though i mean it is just as useful as they always were but um saying that they need to be in a tub
0: because they're in a
1: termite mound may not be the no. best so,
0: let, let me let me talk to that for a second so with these choice experiments we set up enclosures where the the animals literally choose where they want to go and i was like we're doing this with ball pythons because i feel like that is a contribution we could make to either add support an argument deny an argument or basically show there's there's you know value to both arguments so with this experiment, same thing I already talked about, we had these big T25 animal plastics enclosures, put a divider in there. They can go wherever they want. We normalize temperature. One side has newspaper and a hide, the other naturalistic. And then here's the crazy thing: we got those arboreal hides that go up on the top of the enclosure. And so we put the ball pythons in and, and we split them up. So one was inter- two were introduced to natural side, two introduced to the natural side. Okay. All the ball pythons went to the naturalistic side, and that is where they hung out. And then three of the four hung out in the arboreal hide. So they hung out literally (laughs) in a hide, hanging off the top of the enclosure. So they were literally choosing to be up off the ground. So you can't get any further from the termite mound than up in the damn tree in the cavity. And that was just kind of like, I didn't know it was going to do that nobody thought they were going to do that and i thought wow we're sitting on something so we're actually going to try to get four more adult ball pythons and just see is this our four adult ball pythons that you know decided to do this but yeah so i'm not saying they won't do termite mounds they definitely have come from termite mounds but i'm it's just disingenuous as hell to say that is the one habitat that this animal lives in because no animal lives in one habitat like that unless it's the most specialized You know, habitat specialist on planet Earth, and those exist, but they can't live anywhere else. And there's plenty of ball pythons living outside of plastic tubs. The question is, are they okay in the plastic tub? That—that's what you need to get at, not you know the other. But
1: and how does one test that? Besides saying that it's alive and breeding and eating.
0: Yeah. So one way, if you're, so if your question is, are they stressed? that's where you get into the animal welfare. And that's the other thing we've done a lot at West Liberty, because I want to objectively be able to say, is this snake stressed? And so once again, my career ends up back with a pile of snake crap. It, I, I never thought that this was going to happen as much as it's happened with this herpetoculture stuff, because the crypto stuff ends up with snake poop. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at cortisol levels. or, or in, Technically in snakes, it's corticosterone levels, but we'll just say cortisol for the rest of this. And that's stress hormones. And this is an objective way to to see if an animal's stressed in a non-emotive animal, because snakes don't show, I mean, that much emotion. A cobra goes like that, the water cobra spreads its hood. But a ball Python, they can do behaviors that obviously they're scared, but when they kind of get settled, you can't tell, is that thing content? Is that thing upset? Is it stressed? What? And so what we've done is we have figured out a way um, to take snake poop. Uh, and this is another one of my graduate students theses. she's actually defending uh this thursday with her thesis and we've figured out how to get out of the poop the corticosterones in a way where we can compare and contrast and we're able we're we're, we're first step was just getting corticosterone out of the snake poo in the most efficient way the next part of this is we're going to then take some snakes and you know stress them which is just basically open the drawer to the tub repeatedly and then have another group that we don't do that with repeatedly means like once a day by the way i'm not going to have some undergrad like perpetually opening the drawer <laughs> i don't want people to think that and then the idea is that we can then once we've come up with this strategy we'll be able to say okay corticosterone levels at this equal stress corticosterone levels at this equal no stress and that i think is going to be our game changer um people have done this with snake blood but I want you to think about what you got to do to get the blood. You know, you got to pull the snake, the snake out, press the snake. <laughs> um, it doesn't take that much. It's basic husbandry. You're pulling the the feces out of the the tank and the tub. So that's why we're we thought about going that route. Um, but yeah, we're I'm kind of pumped actually because we we have a repeatable measure. It's kind of fun. Um, so we might be able to actually answer that question. It's not perfect. We got a lot more to do, but we're at, we at least have a, an avenue to it.
1: Yeah and I mean those are the questions I believe that people are yelling at each other on Facebook yes. about with all this I guess anecdotal at best evidence and yeah. uh, hopefully you get to kind of illuminate these types of things.
0: Yes cuz we I mean we could get a data set that clearly demonstrates a snake living in a rack with newspaper and a t- and a hide is just as content as the snake zooming around the insanely bioactive naturalistic enclosure. Or we could get something that shows that they actually prefer the newspaper or they prefer the naturalistic. And that's why we're, like, when you're doing science, science, doesn't, science just cares about the truth. Uh, and that's why we were using ethograms. We were trying to deduce what the snake's behavior meant. Um, and there's so much subjectivity in that, that I was just like, no, we need a hard objective value. Uh, that's what I want. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm jonesing to actually, once we, now that we have this, now I really want to attack some of these questions that pop up all the time.
1: There was that study, I believe came out last year at some point about, uh, that basically the UK used to try to make their standards, uh, cage sizes bigger. Um, and the signs of stress were like, I don't know, very random essing of net, like different body postures that I feel like snakes go into pretty often. So I felt like that was kind of a weird way. I don't know if you saw that study. Yeah. I, I saw that study.
0: No, we, we, we read that paper several times. And I think that the intentions of that paper were good. They just, at, at times, it was kind of like, we're going off the rails here a little bit. Um, and I mean, it would be disingenuous for me to say that that paper didn't have an agenda. So
1: <laughs> it was like made by a guy on a board who wants to end all pet
0: ownership or something for people yeah now I, I do think though with that. one thing I agree with is I do think it's best if a snake can stretch out. um that aspect of it, I think there's some truth to. I mean, there's definitely papers beyond that paper. I don't understand why they were just common excited. sense, uh-huh, like if you are an animal that has an incredibly long lung and you've got to sit in perpetual kinks that's obviously going to impact how wide you can you know expand your lung and uh you run the risk of there being some kind of physiological damage therein um but when you're going to come up with those justifications just make sure you're basing it on science i think that's where i've listened to several podcasts and like the word enrichment will come up and every now and then there's this like oh, uh, what the hell are they doing with all this enrichment? Snakes can't have enrichment. And I think that kind of goes back to studies like that and that there's this negative connotation with it. And you know, I would make the argument, if we're keeping these animals in human care, we should do the absolute best we can for them. That, well, that should be something we're all striving for because if that's the standard we're trying to meet, then when these arguments come up that say, you know, you're being cruel, you can immediately counter them with, well, no, we're not, because look at what we're doing here. Um, so there you go.
1: And what is that? Because I feel like we're always trying to stay away from um, anthropomorphizing our animals. So how do we kind of bridge that gap between like trying to realize that these are curious, intelligent beings, but also not, I guess, giving them too much credit, but also just applying feelings to them, especially as a scientist like you are. Uh,
0: I I think behavioral uh, observation are no. yeah. One One thing that we do a lot of is we videotape a lot of our animals. And then we will look at those videotapes with this thing called an ethogram, where we have all these different behaviors identified. And then every time we see that, you know, the evidence of that behavior, we're not necessarily saying this behavior equals happiness and joy. Like, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, whatever this suite of behaviors is rapid tongue flick with head elevated off the ground. We're seeing that repeatedly. And when we see that repeatedly, it's followed by a bunch of movement and then they're basking under a light. So you can then kind of deduce scientifically the tongue flip- flicking and the head elevated is associated with seeking a basking location and then they're basking because they need to bask for you know physiological wellness or something to that effect. Um, And and if you see that the snakes are basking all the time, you can deduce they need to bask, then if you take that same species of snake and keep it in a plastic tub and deny it basking, you can make an argument, well, you're denying it a behavior that we've objectively shown that it uses all the time. You're taking it one step further though if you say it needs this to be happy, okay? Science-wise, you just simply say this is a behavior Part of its natural repertoire and if we're trying to maintain its welfare to the best of our abilities we should probably do what we can to make sure that it can do this behavior because it's doing it frequently and the assumption then is if it's doing it a lot it's doing it because it needs to where there's some kind of nick positive association associated with it so that that's kind of that's the way i look at it but like we don't need to when the hog snake raises its head it's not raising its head to get its snoot booped. that's garbage (laughs) <laughs> like, You're actually going to piss it off and it's going to latch onto your finger and you're going to end up with one of those nasty Western hog nose steak bites that shows up on the internet like, you know, every six months. So
1: maybe your noodles, but my noodles love me. Yeah. So no,
0: absolutely not. So, <laughs> anyway.
1: <laughs> so is there anything that you're looking forward to besides uh, having quarantine over and getting a fresh start? Uh, is there anything that you're looking forward to over the next uh, few months or next semester with, with the program?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have a seven foot water monitor um, and he's getting a brand new enclosure built because he totally outgrew his other one. So that's our big project uh, for the fall. And it's going to be cool because, you know, zoo science. So we actually get to build. uh, I mean, it's going to be big. I think that last time I measured it out, it's going to be eight feet wide by about 12 feet long. I mean, it's massive. So building that with the students and kind of going through that whole process and uh, that's gonna be the biggest build that I've ever done. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to the babies hatching and us getting cranking on the science. Um, We have some publications that are gonna be coming out. So I'm I'm pumped about that. And then this, this corticosterone stuff with the poop and being able to objectively determine stress levels We got to do a little bit more with it but if we can get that dialed in then the sky's the limit um and you know i have to do the shame shameless plug but anybody listening to this if you want a master's degree with us we have the online master's degree so um or you can come to campus uh just find me and and hit me up but and then the other thing i'm really looking forward to is leaving my damn house (laughs) 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 and doing some field work normally this time of year like my wife and son barely see me They're They've been very supportive and this is a weird year in that all my field work is, you know, relatively close to home. So, uh, it'll be good to kind of get back, but you know, I social distance with everyone and I wear my mask. So there you go. That's going to make this all go away.
1: <laughs> so <anyway. Right> <laughs> so uh, where can people reach out to you?
0: Um, you can find me on, uh, well, if you search my name, Zach Lofman, you'll inevitably find my faculty page. And if you want to like shoot me an email, uh, you know old school um Gen X are here. So uh, you can do that. Uh, the other option is I'm on Facebook, so you can message me anytime. Uh, I have to thank you The last time I was on the Facebook, we actually I actually got a graduate student from the podcast, uh, Brian That's awesome. So He's going to be joining us in the fall. Well, shout out
1: to Brian. Yeah. Tell Brian uh-huh. to hit me off. Uh,
0: there you go. <laughs> so anyway. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, but I'm on Facebook, so you can go there. I'm barely on Instagram. I'm trying to, I'm too old for this crap. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just putting snake pictures on Instagram. That's all I'm doing. Uh, you
1: know how many cool dude biologists and herpetologists
0: are on Instagram these days? I, I do, but I don't have time to to do that. I've got, you know, books to write and things like that. Uh I I and the other thing is I am horrible typing with this thing. Notice the crayfish by the way. So <laughs> every time I type with a phone, I look like a blithering idiot. Like I I I I can't do the thumb thing, so I'm doing this and there's misspellings and all kinds of stuff. So I have to wait till I'm at a computer to do you know all that kind of work.
1: But no. Maybe one day we'll convince you.
0: Maybe one day. Yeah. I don't know. I've got to do it with
1: a decent camera. Take some pictures and do it for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, as for me, Port City Pythons, Port City Pet on Instagram, YouTube, all that good stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you, Zach, for uh, hanging out with us and, you know, giving us another amazing interview. And uh, we'll catch you guys all next week.
0: Thank you very much.